Well, welcome, everybody. Are you, guys, are you guys ready to go old school style? Anybody? Anybody? How about people on video? You guys ready to go old school style? I hope so. We are super glad that you're joining us by video. You guys are awesome. Uh, we are so excited that you are here. And when we think about this idea of old school, uh, as I was studying this week, my hands were literally starting to shake. When, when, when I started to peel back what some of this stuff was meaning for us, I, I was just overwhelmed with this idea and reminded that we together, my hope is, is that you'll be reminded that this is God's very word to you, to you, that we're gonna be studying it together. And, and friends, listen, when we take God's word off of the shelf and we actually open it, when we actually study it, and I mean really go deep, let me tell you something, friends, it comes alive to us. And my hope is, is that you will have an open heart to this tonight, that, that your soul would be ready to hear, not what I have to say to you, but what God himself might have to say to you tonight through the teaching of his word. And I gotta admit something, when I think about this, um, I feel very inadequate to teach this. And, and, and I'm asking that God would somehow and in some way speak in spite of who I am, in spite of all of my shortcomings. And I'm hopeful that you'll have an open heart and a gracious heart toward me because I think some of the stuff that we're gonna talk about today is just so critically important. It's detrimental that we understand what we're gonna be talking about tonight. So you guys ready for this? You ready? I hope so. Um, now, I'd love for you to find the book of Isaiah. We've been in this series called Old School, and we've been traveling through the Old Testament part of the Bible, and we are in the book of Isaiah, and it's going to be in the chapter 44 tonight. And so if you have a smartphone, you can just Google it, Isaiah 44, click on the very first thing that comes up, and it'll be right there for you. Um, I think that God is going to speak to you tonight. And while you're finding this little passage of scripture, I want to tell you about a little cartoon that I saw. It was like one of those little drawings, and it was this family that um, was kind of doing the right thing. They were teaching their kid how to say their little prayer at night, right? And so nighttime comes, mom and dad, the child all kneeling next to the bed. And in this little cartoon, we, we see that the that the child was leading the prayer and was saying uh, something like this, uh, dear God, thank you for letting us have such a great day at church today, but I wish that you were there. But I wish that you were there. You see, as we're in this series called Old School and as we're studying this stuff together, we can come and we can hear great things. And we can hear a great band and we can even hear a great message and you can come to a great building with great friends and great people and great coffee and you can go right down the line and say it was all great and you can leave and still not hear from the voice of God. You, you can still miss what God wants to speak to you. My hope is, is that we will not leave here and go, God, it was a great day at church. I just wish that you were here. My hope is that you'll walk out of here going, God was here and God spoke to me. And so I would like to take just a second at the very beginning and just bow our heads humbly before God and asking God to speak into our lives. So Father in heaven, we come just for a moment and just quiet our soul before you. And God, some of us are uh, way far along with this whole faith journey and there's others of us who are just starting this whole deal and I pray God that you would speak to one and all and that somehow God, that we would be open to hearing from you. And so Father, I just say, speak, oh God, for your child is listening. Amen. 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 So here's where we need to go. Um, 
We're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah, and in just a few moments, I'm going to put a little timeline map up there for you, because we have to look today, this is going to be interesting, we're going to look backwards, and then forward, and then backwards again to get it all. Did you get that? We're going to look backwards, and then forward, and then back again, in order to get around this understanding of what Isaiah is really going to speak to us today, right? Um, and, and, you, and you get this, because... Um, we want to hear what God is really saying. We want to go deep into the context of this. And so we need to unravel some of this stuff. And so I'm going to put this little timeline up there for you. And I need you to kind of follow along. At the very beginning of this timeline, uh, we're introduced to, uh, we're going to go through the whole human story today, if that's okay. Little job, but we're going to go through the whole human story, okay? Starting in Adam and Eve. You, you've heard of Adam and Eve, right? Heard of Adam and Eve. Uh, God created them and placed them in this garden, right, where everything was perfect, where everything was meant to be um, in, in right relationship with God, in right relationship with the earth. I mean, they, they had free Taco Bell and free cupcakes, and they could eat as much as they want, and there was, like, no calorie counting. It was an amazing thing, right? And, and it was all good until uh, Adam and Eve introduced this concept of sin into the world. And, and immediately we learn that there is this fallen state of man, this fallen state, and, and this is where we learn that, that man becomes destructive, not only in his relationship toward God, but in his relationship one to another. This is where we learn about the brokenness of man, and theologians call this the fall, right? And, and so after a while, when God allows us, listen, God allows us the free will to choose, right from the very beginning, to choose what we're gonna do with our one and only life. And so because of this, God looks at humanity and humanity has this nature inside of them called the sin nature and it grows and it grows. Anybody in the room wanna be honest for a second and, and care to admit that, that this thing called sin grows inside of you? I mean, you think about it, right? Greed and envy and lust and desire and all of these things, they seem to grow inside of us. And, so, and if we don't figure out a way to arrest them, to somehow rein them in, we're going to be in trouble because it will not end well. And, and we learned right away that it did not end well for man because it kind of grew and grew inside of them. And, and we learned that God had had enough and he literally destroys the world with this thing called the flood. Anybody hear the flood? Right? The, the idea of the flood was that God had had enough because God expects man, you and me, to act a certain way. He expects a certain likeness to him. He created us and wants us to be like him. And, and mankind simply wasn't. And we love the story of the flood because it's got, you know, boats, and who doesn't love boats, and rainbows, and little animals, right? But, but we learn that God destroys humanity, all of it, as an act of judgment. Looking at you and me and saying, this can't go on. And he destroys it as an act of judgment and literally gives us a new start. But you know how it goes with new starts, right? If you're like me at all, you need a new start every once in a while. Anybody in the room ever need a new start? I think almost every single one of us would say, yep, I need to start over once in a while. But what do we do with our start overs? We often just screw them up again. And this is what we learned from mankind is that they immediately screwed up again. Even those that God spared with the great flood, he, mankind, you and me, we destroy it all again. And so God comes along again and, and says, I can't let this go on. And so we, we learn about this story in the scripture called the Tower of Babel. And this is where man began to think that he is God. That, that he is not accountable to, to the God of the heavens at all, but that he is God. And so God says enough of that and he destroys this city called Babel, right? 
and, and, he, and he confuses the language and, and he brings judgment again to the earth. And then, then we learn of another city called Sodom and Gomorrah. They had become uh, sinful and they become rejecting of God and his ways in every single way. And God says, enough is enough is enough. I expect certain behavior out of you. And so he ends up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. God is patient with us, but his patient has its limits, right? And then God does something crazy. At around 2000 BC, this is when we can start nailing down the timeline of human history. Around 2000 BC, uh, God chooses a man named Abraham and literally sees that Abraham is different than everybody else, that his faith was real and genuine and he was a true seeker after the God of heaven. And so God chooses to develop this relationship with him and eventually calls Abraham out to form a new kind of a community. And, the, and they became known as the, the, the Hebrew people. Have you heard this? The Hebrew people literally means the people of God or the community of God. It's a faith community where, where, where they were bound together because this thing called the common faith in the creator God of the Bible. And, and so God makes this covenant, this crazy unconditional covenant saying, I want you to be my people. And if you choose to be my people, I will love you and care for you, but I will also discipline you when you go astray. And so he begins this relationship with the people of God through Abraham. And it didn't take long, though, before Abraham and his descendants screwed it up. Because why? That's just what we do. We screw things up. And we see that it goes south with Abraham's descendants quite quickly. And so God, at some point, looks at his children and says, I need to put you in time out. I need to sequester you, right? And so we learn in 1887 BC, this is almost 2,000 years ago, God takes his people and lands them squarely in the nation of Egypt, and they become enslaved in Egypt, right? And, and we learn something, though. While even still in slavery, that, that God does something with this people, and he chooses to bless them anyways, and they become a mighty nation. They grow, and they grow, and they grow, and eventually, their hearts start turning back toward God, because there's this kind of cycle that even people in this room have, right? There are times when you're running after God, and there's times that you're walking away, and this was the same with the people of God, with the people of Israel. And so their hearts start turning back to God and they start crying out to God for a deliverer, for a savior. And so God sees the cries of his people 400 years later in slavery, in four, roughly 1487 BC. God raises up a man named Moses. And, and God tells Moses, you will go to the Pharaoh, to the king over all of Egypt, and, and you will say, let my people go. And God gives Moses um, this, this power and authority that comes from him. And, and he ushers in what they call the 10 plagues, right? And they were designed to, to judge Egypt for their cruelty over the Jewish people. And, 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 and we learned that, that it was designed to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go. But the Pharaoh was hard-hearted. Now, I mean, if you know the story, I mean, he even brought frogs, like a plague of frogs. Frogs were everywhere. If I was a Pharaoh, I would have been like, get out of town, right? I hate frogs. But it didn't convince Pharaoh. It took a while. But eventually, the Pharaoh decides, uh-oh, I better listen to God. And he sees the power of God made real through this man named Moses. And eventually, he lets the people go. And this becomes known in human history as the great exodus of 1487. Have you heard this? The exodus of the people of God. Literally two million people move out of Egypt and they head for what becomes known as the promised land, right? They have this promised land to them. Now, we, we, we learned something, though, that as they're getting ready to enter the promised land, 
Something very interesting happens. Moses himself has an act of defiance toward God. And Moses himself is not even allowed to go into the promised land. And God raises up a new generation of, of leaders, a guy named Joshua and a guy named Caleb. And let me tell you something. These guys were just sweet. They were sweet because, because they had this boldness about them. They had this courage about them. As a matter of fact, in their writings, they would say, be strong and courageous for God is with you. And they end up taking the people into this land called the promised land. But through the history books and through the Bible, we learned that they were just like us. Sometimes they were in and sometimes they were out. And they kind of had this spin cycle going on. Sometimes fully devoted toward the things of God and other times they, they were not. And so God raises up at this time this series of judges, these men and women who ruled over the people. And what they did was they ruled sort of like prophet and priest, president and politician all at the same time. They ruled on behalf of God. They tried to do it right, but of course, there were good judges and there were bad judges. And things just kind of kept going through this spin cycle. And sometimes the people would turn toward God and sometimes they would run from God. Well, one generation would get it right and the next generation would get it wrong. And this era lasted between 1440 BC and 1095 BC. What Israel needed, they thought, was a king. You see, they looked around to the rest of the world, and they saw that the world was becoming ruled by kings and emperors, men who, who ruled with the sword. And God, through his judges and through his prophets, began to say, no, 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 you don't need that. You need to come back toward me. I will take care of you, because if you give your life to a king, they will take your money, and they will take your sons to war. He says, you don't want that. But the people, not like us, we would never do this, they demanded their own way. And God is a God of free will. And God gave them what they wanted. And so God gave them this series of kings. And we learn right away that the first king was a guy named Saul. And, uh, and it was about 1025 BC or so. But it didn't take very long to see that Saul was a failure. He screwed it up. Early on in his life, like many of us in this very room, listen to me, very much like us, we get it right. And we're running after the right things. But sin has this way of growing inside of us, doesn't it? All of us, you and me, it has this way of overtaking us. And, and, and it almost like it takes us into being somebody that we don't want to be. And so Saul ends up becoming somebody he never intended to be. And God removes his kingship. And, and the people are excited at this point because they think, oh, wow, our hearts are renewed. Our, we, we have a new king, a man who they call the man after God's own heart. His name was? David. And David was a great king. And again, at first, he was fully devoted to the things of God. He, he did it right. And under David, listen, under David, um, the kingdom became united and the kingdom became prosperous. They called it the United Kingdom or the Golden Age of Israel. And, and they become one of the dominant world players on the whole globe under David's influence. But guess what? David was like you and David was like me. He was a sinner. He didn't always get it right. And, and this thing, like we talked about, this thing called sin grew inside of him. And it took him away from God in so many ways in his life. He got some things right, but he got some things wrong. And at the end of his life, he ends up giving the kingdom to his son, Solomon, which was tradition, of course. And in 970 BC, Solomon takes over. And Solomon, again, like so many of us in this room, when he was young, he started off so well. He had a fire in his soul for God. He wanted to do it right. 
But sin has this way of growing inside of us. And it took Solomon far off of his game. As a matter of fact, when he comes to the end of his life, God says, Solomon, how could a heart that was once so fully devoted end up so torn, so away from me? How does this happen? Well, we learned that Solomon, in his younger years, he built this thing called the temple. His father, David, had this dream for this temple, this place of worship for all of God's people. And, and, and Solomon, when he was young, he built this temple as this monument to God, as this place where people like you and me would come to do life with God and to experience God. And by the end of his life, he abandoned all of that. And he ended up very far from the heart of God in so many ways, in so many ways. But his sons eventually take over. And if, uh, and if you're not careful, your sons will screw it all up. And they screwed it all up. And this mighty nation, this world-dominant power called Israel, ends up becoming a divided nation under, under the sons of Solomon. And, and, the, and the kingdom was divided into two segments. We, we learned that it became a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, right? And this was in roughly in the year, roughly around 7, 750 BC or so. And, 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 and things just fell apart. And at this exact time, when things were falling apart, God raises up a series of men they call prophets. Enter in the man we've been talking about. His name is Isaiah. Isaiah enters the scene at 740 BC, and, and, and we've been talking about this guy. He was a prophet. He, th this means that, that he was the, the voice for God, that he spoke for God, that he, he called the people to come back to God, to turn their hearts back to God, but it also means something else. And this is where we're gonna dial in today on. He was also what they called a prophet who was a seer. What does it mean to see? He was called a seer. In other words, God gave him this gift of seeing into the future. He gave, the God the, he gave Isaiah this gift of being able to, to look into the future and to write it down and to say, here's what's coming if you're not careful. Here's what's coming. And so he begins to speak these prophetic words. And, and, and today I want to spend some time just looking at this idea of these prophetic words, this prophet type of stuff. Um, because I think there's a whole bunch of us in this room that this is where you go, huh, I was with you with the whole love thing. I was with you with the whole, you know, let's keep our families together thing. But I'm losing you right there when you start talking about the God of prophecy and all of this crazy talk about people seeing the future. Right there, as you, you say, can you really believe this stuff? Or can I really believe this stuff? Friends, let me tell you something. I wanna dive deep into this. And I hope that you travel with me the whole time because I think the prof uh, that, that prophecy makes the Bible believable. That this stuff is actually what lends credibility to the stuff that I believe. And I hope that you walk out of here tonight with a greater understanding of what I think to be one of the most important issues for all those who would truly want to seek faith in their life. And so again, we have to move backwards, and then now we got to look forward. We're going to go into the future now. Remember, Isaiah is planted in 740 BC. And when Isaiah comes on the scene, he immediately begins to tell the people of Israel that you're going to be conquered by a, man, or by a, by a kingdom or an empire named the Assyrians. Remember we talked about this. You remember this from school. The Assyrian Empire rises up and eventually comes and crushes Israel in 722 BC. 
and they dominate over the lands of Israel. But, but Isaiah wasn't just talking about this prophetic word that would be about the Assyrians, though that came true. He said, it's gonna get worse than that for you. Remember, we began to talk about this, right? That he said, there's gonna be another empire that comes after the Assyrians called the Babylonians. And the people of Isaiah's day were going, you crazy, you crazy. Because the Babylonians were this little tiny town on the outskirts of the, of the Assyrian empire. And they're like, we got those people subdued. They're not going anywhere. But Isaiah says, oh, 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 you better watch out because it's coming. God has given me this vision that it's coming. And very prophetically, very straightforward, he names this rising kingdom and calls it Babylon. He names it. We started talking about some of that last week. And what do we know from history? That by 612 BC, the Babylonians utterly destroyed the Assyrians. And then just a few years later, they swoop down and over into Israel and they collect the people of Israel, thousands and tens of thousands of them, and they take them into what became known as the exile. They literally enslaved entire regions of the globe. And they moved these people out of Israel, the Jewish people out of Israel, and they took them to their great capital called Babylon and they enslaved them to build their great works, just like in Egypt, very similar. Right? Y'all with me so far? But Isaiah goes, it's going to get all up and crazier than that. Isaiah says, it's not just Babylon. Now, he's looking already 100 years into the future. He says, now we're going to go further into the future because God will eventually allow somebody else to come along. And Isaiah predicts, and we talked about this last week, by name, by name, that there is this new empire coming called the Medes and the Persians. And they are going to come and crush Babylon. And they're going to destroy everything, right? But God's going to do something interesting through the, Babylon, or through the Persians. You see, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed and they took the people out. But he says the Persians, God's going to use them in a different way. God's going to use them to not only destroy the Babylonians, but he's going to use the Persians to bring you back into Israel. Now, the people were looking at this going, Isaiah... You have flipped a lid Be because, because the people were going, we are secure. We have our act together. We are still a mighty nation. And then the Assyrians did come. And they're looking at this thing called the temple that Solomon built. Remember this? That Solomon built. And they go, the temple's already been standing for 400 years. It's going to stand for 400 more years. And you're telling us that this Babylonian people, they're going to tear it apart and destroy it. And eventually the Persians are going to come back and let us rebuild it. You crazy because they're looking at the temple of God and they're saying, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And, and so we, we see that this does come to pass because the Persians, we learned from history, in 539 literally come in and they utterly destroy the Babylonians. And, and this is where it gets all up real crazy-like because Isaiah gets this, gives this very specific historical event and one that I think that is worth unpacking just a little bit. And I want us to go deep into this. And I hope that you're ready for this because Isaiah, 200 years prior to this event, begins to write down exactly how Babylon is gonna be conquered by the Persians. Are you ready for this? You wanna know how it happens? He, he says this in advance. So let me just walk you through the historical records. History records that at the height of the Babylonian Empire, uh, they had built the town or the city or, or the, uh, the capital city of Babylon right on the Euphrates River, which is in present-day Iraq. 
okay? And it's right on the Euphrates River. Anybody ever hear of the Euphrates River? And so what they did was they literally build the city right over the Euphrates River. So it's wrapped in a circle and the wall goes right around over the river and everything. And, and it's a giant city. It's the empire city. It's the capital city. And, and strategically throughout the city, there are these, these gates that come down over the waterways that ran through and around the city. There are these gates that people would come in and out of and they were tightly controlled. There were these huge brown gates. All of this is recorded in history. And it says that they built these walls um, so large and, and, and history records them as, quote, being impregnable, unassailable, unscalable, that we will be an empire forever. And we learned through history that the, the Babylonians were smart. They, they took the Euphrates River and they built this city right around it. And then they took the Euphrates River and they, they built basically ca uh, canals all the way around the city and they created these moats. Have you heard of moats? They're the defensive space between the land in the city, and so that they're like going, if you're gonna attack us, not only are we gonna have this impregnable wall, but we are gonna build a moat right up to that wall all the way around, and if you're gonna come at us, you're gonna have to come on a boat, and we're gonna be up top looking at you, dropping big rocks on you, right? And this is how it worked in history. You know this, right? You've seen this kind of stuff. And so Babylon was the greatest city the world had ever known at this point. But it's gonna get all up and crazy right now. Because ancient history tells us that, that there is this growing little kingdom called the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians eventually become known just as the Persians and they are led by a man named Cyrus. He eventually becomes the king over Persia. And eventually Cyrus takes down the city of Babylon and here's how it went. The Babylonians under King Belshazzar was, uh, they had gotten to a point with their world dominance that they go, we're, we're it. No, but they become arrogant and sassy and, and they literally had given, the leadership of Babylon had literally been given over to just partying, like drunken partying. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, he's not even the king, he's just like this little warlord guy at first. And he, he sees that their leadership had become arrogant. And so he does something absolutely crazy. Um, he takes his army a couple miles upstream from where the river Euphrates flows into the capital city called Babylon. And he begins, like miles out of town, he begins to tell his men, we're not going to attack. Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to do some digging and he takes his army and they literally start to dig these canals that ran off both sides of the Euphrates River into the desert and into the wilderness experience, right? Now follow this, this is amazing. He begins to divert the water and he keeps the bank up and just when the Babylonians were at the height of their partying and the king himself, because he had insiders doing the spying, he hears that the king is in a drunken stupor. He orders his men to break the breach and to divert the water into the desert region. And guess what happens? The waterbed goes down and then the people, the army of the Persian army, they just go marching right in under the gates in the middle of the night and they, they slaughter the Babylonians. And Cyrus, because of this uh, incredible move, they end up giving him a name. They call him the new king, and they call him Cyrus the Great. Have you heard of him? Cyrus the Great. He leads the Persians to literally become the greatest empire up until that point that the world had ever known. Now, 
This is where we got to swing back into to the scriptures. This is where Isaiah speaks about this. This is amazing. So you got the whole story. You understand how it all ha happened, right? He comes in under the gate, catches them totally unaware, slaughters them all. He becomes a new king. Persians now take over the Babylonians in one night. One night. Pretty amazing, right? No fight at all, hardly. And, and so, up until this point, the, the Israelis or the, the Hebrew people had been in exile for 70 years in Babylon. And we're going to learn that they get sent back to Israel shortly hereafter. Here's what happens. Uh, Isaiah 44. You ready for this? Y'all ready for this? Because this is going to get crazy. Your mind is about to be blown. Right now. Listen to this. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Written 200 years before the Persian event even happened. Okay? There was no Persia. There was no King Cyrus. There was none of that. 200 years in advance. This is what he writes. But I, he's speaking for God, but I, God, carry out the predictions of my prophets. By them I say to Jerusalem, people will live here again. And to the towns of Judah, you will be rebuilt. I will restore all of your ruins. And there, people are going, you're crazy. We ain't going nowhere. And Isaiah's going, oh, you're gonna go somewhere. The Babylonians are going to come and take you into exile, but you're coming back under a new king. Listen to this. This gets all crazy. This is weird. Uh, it says, now listen, now listen to this. This is amazing. Verse 27. When I speak to the rivers and say, dry up. Woo! How did the Persians come in? Through a drying riverbed that had sunk low and the people just come right in under the gates. Come on. Whoa. Listen to this. Listen to this. Verse 28. When I say of who? Cyrus. Who became known as Cyrus the Great? The king of Persia. This is 200 years in advance. He's saying, there's a guy coming named Cyrus. Better watch out for that boy. Does anybody in the room find this ex a little unsettling? that a guy could write this a couple hundred years in advance? He says, when I say of Cyrus, who, who was the king of Persia, um, and this is where God shifts and goes, you see, you kings and you emperors, you think you're large and in charge, but I'm the one who's large and in charge. I'm the one who makes emperors. I'm the one who moves them like little pawns around. They think they're controlling the world, but they ain't controlling nothing. Not without me saying so. And he's going to say, this is how I'm going to use this king that you've never even heard of in an empire you haven't even seen yet. He says this, when I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He's doing what I want him to do. He is my shepherd. He will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. And this is an amazing thing because one of the things we're going to learn from the book of Ezra and from human history that the king of Persia, a man named Cyrus, orders that the Jews in Babylon be restored to their city and get this, go build your temple and get this, I'm going to pay for it. We learn from history that Persia paid for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Here's what it says. Ezra, we're going to go to a different book. Ezra records it like this. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem. This is the edict of the king. He's saying this is what the king has ordered. You may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And again, these people are going, are you crazy? This temple ain't going nowhere. Why does it need rebuilt? And Isaiah is saying, you just watch. You just watch. You just watch. Now listen to this. 
Um, even to this very day, by the way, you can go to Israel and you can see one wall that is left standing of Solomon's temple. You can go there today and see this to be true. It's amazing, right? So here's what happens next. Listen to this. Turn, turn to the 45th chapter of Isaiah, verse one. This is, this is gonna blow your mind. It says this. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus. So Isaiah is speaking for God to a man who's not even born yet. He says, this is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Remember, Cyrus isn't even around, and God's saying, I'm gonna control this guy. He thinks he's gonna rule the world, but he's only ruling what I want him to rule. But listen to this. Before him, mighty kings will be, uh, mighty, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be open, never to shut again. This is what the Lord say. I will go before you, Cyrus, and I will level the mountains. Now listen. Babylon had what? Mighty walls. And when you came up to that mighty wall, you were on a little boat going, oh, that's like, that might as well be a whole mountain up there. And God says, that mountain's coming down. They're going right under those gates. Those gates aren't going to stop me or anybody else. Woo! The ancient city of Babylon had these massive gates, right? And the enemy just crept in when they were unaware. Let me just pause for one second here. Um, you and me, I don't know where you are with faith, but let me tell you something. You have an enemy that wants to come in under the gate. You have an enemy that wants to destroy your family, your life. And if we become arrogant and smug and prideful about it, it will not end well for us. It'll be just like Babylon because God will bring low the proud every single time. Just thought you should know. Right? Right? And, and friends, let me tell you something. Uh, God is the God of history. All history belongs to God. All of it. It's his story. And Isaiah is just saying, there is a God who is bigger than these kings. There's a God who's bigger than these emperors. There's a God who moves history and changes the world to fit his plan and his purpose. But what's amazing, when you study Isaiah, you'll learn that Isaiah uh, talked about kings and kingdoms, but that wasn't his main passion. His main passion was not emperors and empires. His, his main passion was something different than that because he saw into the future and he saw the world around him and he saw that there was a brokenness of soul that no kingdom could, be, could fill. He saw that there was a brokenness in humanity that no amount of prosperity could lift. He said there's a brokenness of soul that requires something more than a king. And he begins to speak of this thing called the coming Messiah. And Isaiah spent most of his time not writing about kings and kingdoms or much of his time writing about a Messiah who would come and change the world. Isaiah, thousands of years ago, wrote of Jesus who was never even thought of at this point. And he begins to tell of your need and my need and the world's need of a coming Messiah. Check this out. Those of you who might be just a bit skeptical about this thing called the Christian faith, one of the reasons that people like me, people who are Christians like me, believe so strongly in Jesus is because of people like the prophet Isaiah. Uh, you see, the prophet Isaiah, 
He spoke of the coming Messiah. He spoke of the coming Savior, who we think is Jesus, through these things called prophecies. He, he literally spoke of, of this person to come in very specific terms, terms that we think apply directly to Jesus, and I'd like to share a few of them with you. Now, I need you to be open for a moment. I need you to have an open heart and an open mind. I need you to hear this and, and take it in all of its big in all of its history, in all of its context, because I think that you are going to be, you're going to be at least shocked at how specific Isaiah wrote literally 700 years before the coming of Christ. For example, in Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah speaks of this coming Messiah as being born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And then written in the book of Luke, hundreds and hundreds of years later, it records the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 126 says that Jesus was born of a virgin. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And then I think one of the biggest chapters that talks about the coming Messiah is Isaiah chapter 9. If you were to go through Isaiah chapter 9, you would see that Isaiah makes a big, big deal of Jesus being born in the line of King David. You see, King David was, was the great king of Israel. He is the one who unified the country. He was like Israel's hero. And the scripture speaks that one who is in the line of David would always sit on the throne. And people thought the throne was some physical throne, that the kingdom was some physical kingdom. But of course, we know that the kingdom of God resides here and now in our hearts. And, and, and the kingdom of God was made flesh through Jesus. So look at Isaiah chapter 9 and what it says. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Then when you go into the book of Luke, it records the coming of Jesus. It records the line of Jesus. And you'll see in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 32 in particular, it talks about Jesus being born in the line of David. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And here's where it gets very, very specific. In Isaiah chapter 50, in verse 6, it says that, that this coming Messiah will be abused, that he will be spat upon. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And then for those of us who know the story of Jesus, we know that, that Matthew, an eyewitness, records in chapter 26 that Jesus was abused and spat upon during his trial and his torture leading up to his crucifixion. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? If you were to go deeper into the book of Isaiah, you would see that Isaiah becomes more and more specific about what was going to happen to this coming Messiah, that he would be abused and that he would suffer at the hands of the government. And so we see in Isaiah 52 and 53 that he was going to be abused. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then if you were to look into the book of Mark, another eyewitness account records that Jesus was scourged and abused by the Romans. The soldiers led Jesus away to a palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it upon him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. They were mocking him, right? And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and they put on his own clothes again. And then they let him out to be crucified. And here's one that applies to us, one that I find very, very interesting. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, it says that Gentiles, that would be people like us, would seek after him. Remember, Jesus, this Messiah, was coming through the line of the Jews. And yet Isaiah says that people like you and me would end up seeking him. The nations will rally to him, that the whole world will seek after him. And of course we learn in John 12, 20 that, that the Gentiles did come to seek him, but also you and I seek him today. Now there were some Greeks among them who went to worship at the festival. And then one of the most famous verses in all the Bible reads like this, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus died for us. Friends, it seems to me that there is enough in Isaiah's book alone to make somebody like me, I may not be the smartest guy or the brightest guy out there, but there seems to be enough in this book that a guy like me would say, whoa, maybe there is something to this Jesus guy. Maybe there is something to the fact that literally billions of people around the globe have searched after him and have come after him. Maybe there's just something about Jesus that is worth me looking into. I was online uh, yesterday with a guy who was claiming to be an atheist and, uh, and one of the things he said to me was just shocking to me. He, he said, your Bible, that Bible thing you believe, he says there's not even a lick of truth in any of it. In any of it. And I was like, really? Not even a lick of truth at all? Because when I read Things like when Jesus says, if you want the pathway to peace in your life, you got to somehow lose the bitterness and learn to forgive. That just rings like truth to me. And when I see that, that Jesus would come along and he would say, you, you, you know what, how, how life needs to be? He says, you've heard it said, persecute those who persecute you and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and treat others exactly how you would like to be treated by them. To me, I just go, that sounds like truth. When he, when he says that blessed are the peacemakers, that the greatest among you will be those not who make war, those who kill and destroy, 
but the greatest among you will be the peacemaker. There's something in my heart that leaps and says, that's just true. That is just the truth. And when I read the pages of scripture, every page leaps off to me as, as this is God's word to me. It's true. And when I, when I study a guy like Isaiah and we start to look at the history around it, we start to realize that it is truly not just history, but it is his story at work. And he is the God of not only creation, but of the human story. And there's enough in Isaiah for a guy like me just to go, whoa, uh, maybe it is true. Maybe it all is true. My hope today was that we would leave here with, with just a greater understanding a biblical prophecy because, because I think prophecy makes the Bible believable. It's part of the story for me that I just go, that makes it all that much more believable. That's my hope. It's that simple. Actually, it might be just a little bit more than that. <laughs> my hope is that no matter who you are, tonight because of some of these thoughts that we've put out there tonight that you'll take your next step with God. Maybe some of you come in here week after week and you believe but you're not fully committed. My hope is that Isaiah's story compels you to seek after Jesus at a whole new level in your life. That you would realize that there is a truth of God founded in the pages of scripture and that if it's true at all then it deserves my full attention. And my hope is, is that you'll take your next step. And there's others in this room right here, right now, who you came into here, you're very unsure and you have all kinds of doubts and you're skeptical in so many ways. But maybe just because of something that you heard tonight, you'll be willing to, to go further, to come more regularly, to take your next steps to figure out if this Jesus guy is true at all. That you won't be passive about it anymore. But that you'll get to the point in your life that you go, hey, if there's a God at all, I want to know who he is. And it'll be a serious search in your life. That's my hope. That you'll take your next step, no matter who you are tonight. All right, at both of our campuses, let's pray together. So, Father in heaven, uh, we, we just take a moment to humble our hearts before you. Uh, God, asking that you would speak into the soul of each person here. Um, God, I, I get it. There's, there was a lot of information thrown at people tonight, and there's just a lot rolling around in our hearts right now. But, God, if this is true at all, it at least deserves our attention. So I pray for every single person in this room, every single person that your spirit would speak into their heart, their mind, their soul. And that you would come alive inside of them. That you would stir something deep in their minds that they would want to know more. Speak, oh God, for your child is listening.
Amen?